I just, like, can't feel my face. All right, take us away. This is Unorthodox, Universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And the editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom. He's so large this week, he landed uh, Natan Sharansky, the great hero of Soviet Jewry. So we're going to run Liel's interview with Major General Sharansky. And Liel and Stephanie speak with Esther Povitsky, who you know if you watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because she played Maya uh, from The Office, the office friend, the obsequious office friend of Rachel Bloom's character. And she just released her new stand-up special on Comedy Central. I have to say I like this because last week we were talking about the Soviet Jewry movement with Adam Eli. And now this is sort of like when we got Matthew Weiner to talk about Mad Men and Dick Hornby uh, to talk about uh, High Fidelity. High Fidelity. Natan Sharansky. I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) What's that a reference to, Stephanie? What TV show? High Fidelity. Oh. 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 Is that right? Liel. No. Educator. That is the A-team, my friend. The (laughs) A-team. We're going to be off uh, for the next couple weeks, so we want to jam-pack this episode with all of the unorthodoxy that you deserve, J. Crew. You you deserve all of it, and we're going to try to give you what we can. I want to go right into the news of the Jews. First, I want to do a location check. I'm here uh, on Cape Cod with my family. So, So by the way, this is not going right into news of the Jews. This is locating, (laughs) this is centering ourselves, as they say. I want to do news, but first... Us, maybe? <laughs> just a little about us. Just a, a, a bissel. Just a bissel of us. I'm on Cape Cod. Leo, we're, you're, back, you're back on the Upper West, right? Uh, I'm headed to Cape Cod. By the time you're you hear to- this episode, I will be on Cape Cod. And Stephanie? Guys, I'm still in the same closet I've been living in since this all started. <laughs> like, congrats on all your fancy vacations. But some of us here are still, still trucking. Our, our AC now makes this, like, harrowing sound. Like, I think oh it's the God. motor, but... Who knows? It still works. So so here we are. I do have to say, like, I don't know if you can see it on my face, but I had some had some dental work done today. It's fun because half my face was numb. And then I was like, oh, I have to record a podcast. So, like, hopefully I can feel my tongue by then. But I will say I've never felt as safe as I felt in that dentist's office where they have, like, a HEPA vac filter and a UV light and they fog the rooms after each person. I had to gargle hydrogen peroxide twice for one minute each. And I was like, this is horrible. It was horrible. I think I swallowed some. So a a while back, uh, I was invited to be on a panel with the late, great Alan Rickman. Ooh, that's a strong panel. A day or two earlier, I had some dental work done. And I'm sitting there on this panel, and the one thing, the one thought that goes through my mind and absolutely terrifies me is that he will think that I'm doing a bad Alan Rickman impersonation because my, my cheeks are so numb. I, like, I sounded like that. And so I didn't say much. I'm so very Rick- wonder, like very curious what panel would have had you and Alan Rickman on yeah. it. Just a I'd rather not say. <laughs> Jewish immigrants to America. The British Jew. It was in my hard left phase. It was, <laughs> it was a hard lefty play downtown that he produced and he wanted me to talk about. What I love about your hard left phase is it ended precisely five minutes before your hard right phase began. There was I've tried to locate the sort of the, the moment in time, the week like, in like 2009. I went to Cape Cod and when, came back at the, <laughs> a different person. I like at these panels you started in like the far left chair and you've just like over the years been going rightward towards the other end of the panel, the That's physical other end of the panel. Correct. Uh, now that we've, you know, touched base and said something about ourselves, let's move into uh, the news of the Jews, because it's really, this is not just the news of a Jew or two, it's the news of all Jewry. And what I mean by that, of course, is that it has been announced, whether this comes to fruition or not, we shall see, that there will be a sequel 
to Dirty Dancing, one of the most iconic Jewish movies ever. Apparently, it's going to star the iconic Jennifer Grey and come out, we don't know when, but it's just worth saying, anytime Dirty Dancing ends up back in the news, we have a responsibility uh, to weigh in on it. Stephanie, are you excited? I am very excited. My like main Dirty Dancing memory is I went to a screening of the film back in like 2011 uh, when I was just started at Tablet, and Eleanor Bergstein, who is the writer and co-producer of the film, was there, and I interviewed her after, and I basically said, I was like, you know, I didn't really realize that this was such a Jewish film growing up. And she was just like, what is wrong with you? And it was amazing. It's when you grow up in Great Neck, that's a Jewish film. It's just a film. Yeah. Here's a movie with all of these people in it. But so what she said was, she was like, it's a Jewish film if you know what you're looking for, was what Uh, she said, which I love. mm -hmm. But Mark, if I'm not mistaken, Dirty Dancing, a movie you have never seen? Right. So... I don't think I've made this particular confession before. You know that I've not read Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. I've never fasted on Tish Above, and I've never seen Dirty Dancing. It may be the only Patrick Swayze movie I haven't seen, for what it's worth. It's just Um, so weird. Like, I get it. You don't go to museums. That's one thing. But, like, (laughs) Dirty Dancing, that's canon. I'm not avoiding Dirty Dancing. And in fact, I will commit right now to watching it. I'm not avoiding it. I think I'd love it. It it checks many of my boxes. It's Um, pretty much Deuteronomy and Dirty Dancing. Those are right. the two. <laughs> it's Deuterami dancing. Deutery yeah. dancing. It's it's clearly a movie I should see, not least because Jennifer Grey zoomed to the top of my list of favorite actresses with her work as the lightly closeted mother in uh, one of the greatest limited run streaming series ever, Amazon Prime's Red Oaks, set at a Jewish country club in New Jersey in the 1980s, starring a Welsh actor whose name I can't remember, but he plays Jewish brilliantly. <laughs> and then as the judge, because every like country club in a comedy needs a judge, right? The Ted Knight figure from Caddyshack, uh, Paul Reiser. But then as this guy's mother, uh, Jennifer Grey, who's who's simply genius in it. And I thought, you know, this woman, has she done other work? What else has she been in? <laughs> And it was gently pointed out to me that she was, of course, in Dirty Dancing. So, uh, you know, I'm very excited. It's time for me to get with the whole Dirty Dancing wagon, to, to hop on that bandwagon. Liel, are you excited for this movie? I am so excited for this movie, not because I like the original, because I saw it a couple of times. I really didn't like it in particular. I thought Jerry Orbach was great, but the rest of it is sort of, I don't know, didn't really speak to me. But here's what I want the sequel to be. I want the sequel to be about Jennifer Grey's character returning to the Catskills and realizing that the entire area where she had grown up as a kid is now 100% Hasidic. And the movie will be called Modest Dancing. It's (laughs) women dancing on one end of the screen and men dancing on the other end of the screen. And, uh, you know, no one puts Bubala in the corner. That'd be great. I thought you were going to say it should be called Schmutzy Dancing. Schmutzy Dancing. Well, you know that they offered, there's a role in the film, there's an old couple in the film, and it's her, like, I don't want to spoil anything for you, Mark, but they're basically okay. pick, they're pickpockets. This the older uh-huh. couple that stays at the hotel, and uh-huh. they offered that role to Ruth Westheimer, oh. and she turned it down, famous, I mean, not famously, this is like a little known internet fact, but like, she turned it down because she was like, I don't want to represent Jewish people doing something bad. So 48 years ago, when the original movie was made, they offered Ruth Westheimer the part of an old Jewish lady. Right. Maybe she wants to take the part now. She's going to be baby this time. (laughs) 
I couldn't be more uh, excited. You know what I'm not excited about? I'm not excited about the new law in Delaware requiring the teaching of Holocaust and genocide history in high schools. And it must be implemented according to the law in the 2021-22 school year. It's been signed by the governor. Wait, why, why don't you like this? Okay, I realize, first of all, I want to apologize for taking it from frivolity and joyful Jewishness of Dirty Dancing down into the Holocaust. Look, it had to happen. It had to happen, right? It's 2020, Mark. It's 12 minutes into this episode. (laughs) Everybody drink. So here's the thing. We are in a moment right now where, and in every political moment, in every moment really, different groups of people are demanding that new things be added to curricula and that um, curricula be expanded to include the experiences of this group or that group or this bit of history that hasn't been taught. And all of it is super well-meaning and and. All of it touches on certain truths, right? We, we should know about African-American history. We should know about the history of the Holocaust. We should know about gay history. We should know about the displacement of Native peoples. And also uh, non-tragic facts about Native peoples, what Native peoples gave to America other than their suffering, right? All of this is true. But every time a law gets passed that says, now we're going to add this, I feel, as somebody who's been a teacher at many different grade levels— I feel for the teachers who are now told, insert this other couple weeks of stuff into your curriculum. You're not allowed to take anything out, but you have to jam more stuff in. And you will then be judged on standard, based on standardized tests of how well students now know this additional thing. And the reality is I just feel like if what we want is good teaching – I don't think it works this way in other countries where they design the curriculum because interest groups, and in this case, the interest groups might have been Jews, pressure the governor of a small state in one little part of the country to jam this new thing in or to make this other thing required by law. I think that the way you build good curricula is thoughtful educators come together every five or 10 years and say, what do we have room for? How do we do it? How do we foreground the student's interest? It's not political groups. It's it's how do we teach students well? I just feel like this has to, it always ends badly when it's like, oh, the legislators said learn X. Plus, if you have to teach this, how do you judge that you've actually taught appropriately? Is there like a Holocaust SAT in Delaware now? Like, do you have to score 800 or higher in order to You show them Schindler's List and then you punish them if like they make out or laugh or throw popcorn at the screen during Schindler's List. It's a Seinfeld episode now. But look, it says each district can develop its own curriculum. I don't dislike this. I think we should be expanding. I I get it what you're saying that there's only that we're like adding this burden to the schedule, but I think it's fine. I mean, I think that all of this should be taught and good teachers can figure out how to do it. If I had my choice between making in the great state of Delaware, where my wonderful wife is from, teaching the Holocaust or teaching a little bit about actual like Jewish life and culture as it is lived in the world today, the things we do and believe in, I, I think that's better. I like to think that we can maybe do both. Why don't we say Delaware, do both? <laughs> Look, I have no doubt that the J. Crew is going to pile on uh, on Stephanie's side here. So write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Tell me why I'm wrong. The next bit of news of the Jews, I am professionally unqualified as a Jew to even talk about because it has to do with ice hockey. Stephanie Erliel, does one of you want to handle this one? I'll just read you the headline, Mark. Israeli ice hockey star, which is already really funny, signs to play in Oshvietrum, otherwise known as Auschwitz. There's an Israeli ice hockey player <laughs> playing for the Auschwitz team. Now, I don't know if you know this, the um, Brooklyn minor league team, baseball team, is called the Brooklyn Cyclones. So I yep. wonder if the Auschwitz ice hockey team is the Auschwitz Cyclone Bees, maybe? Wow. So, okay, so let's let's be clear. He's, he's not just any hi- ice hockey player. He is the captain of Israel's team. He is from <laughs> Canada, now is Israel. Does that mean he's even a little bit good? <laughs> it's called the, the Tel Aviv Cool Runnings. <laughs> The town of Oshvienshim is like 
the the Polish town outside of which Auschwitz was built. And Auschwitz is the German translation. And actually, the Yiddish word for that town is Auschwitzen, which is a it was a place where Jews lived for hundreds of years. And there's actually like this really, really interesting history of the Jews in Auschwitzen. And anyway, that's just me going off on a tangent because, you know, how often do I get to talk about Auschwitzen, a place I have actually been. I stayed there for seven nights while I was on a fellowship through the Auschwitz Jewish Center based in Auschwitzen. And I really, really hope Eliezer Sherbatov, who is 28 and is now signed to the... Oshvianshim. I don't even know what their what their team is called, but but basically he's like, I'm excited. I've not seen any anti-Semitism in they're, ice hockey. They're called I, the, the Obersturman Führers, I believe. But you know what he says? He's like, I want to win the championship, the Polish Cup, and the Continental title, and then everyone will know the one who did this is a Jewish Israeli. And hey, Stephanie, like, that's amazing. Yeah. If he wants to win, you know what he has to do? What? Train. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm so stop. Look, he asked for a salary and they said, look, man, work will make you free. So (laughs) Um, I love this. We need to get like an official hockey correspondent. If you are in the J crew and you are a hockey fan, like we need someone that we can call up and just like get a weekly update. I am going to play the part usually played by Mark Oppenheimer and say something completely outrageous. I love every sport. I spend hours every day watching sports. Sport is all I watch on TV. I adore. I'll watch three kids playing, you know, pickup sticks. I don't care. Ice hockey is the single stupidest sport ever created. It's a sport that literally should be played by bears holding sticks in the woods. Like, there is nothing to it. Which is weird that you wouldn't like that. That's just like your like, aesthetic. I'm seeing you play it, actually, as you conjure that image. Yeah, I, I, I look like that animal, so that's, that's right. what I would do. But, like, the whole sport, what's the point to this? I can skate fast with stick. Like, come on, man. Do better. Uh, can we buy a stake in this team? <laughs> That's all you. You can you can put your the Oshvianchim unorthodoxim. The Oshvianchim J crew. Um, <laughs> by the way, why not just call them the Jews? The Auschwitz right. Jews. It's right. the greatest name for a sports team ever. And then they can use that gesture. The French comedian, you know, Dujonais Canel. The Canel, yeah. The weird flipping of the bird in France that is anti-Semitic. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a deep cut, Mark. That was really a nice. That was like summer of 2015. The biggest story on all the Jewish papers. You are welcome, my (laughs) co-hosts. Speaking of hardcore Jews from Israel, Adin Steinsaltz, the great translator of the Talmud into contemporary Hebrew whence it has been translated into many other languages. Adin Steinsaltz died earlier this week. We bid him farewell. Leo, you met uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz, is that not right? I had the great privilege, and I gotta tell you, you know, we lose people from time to time, public figures, and it makes us sad on some level. This one really hit me very hard. You know, I recently started studying Talmud myself and have a podcast that tries to make it sort of more accessible to people. None of this, none of this would have been even remotely possible if it weren't for the monumental work of this man to take this multi-volume masterful work and translate it into a language that all of us understand. And here's, here's the thing. So he grew up in a really secular family in Jerusalem. So secular that his father, who is not only a devout atheist, but a hardcore communist who went to Spain to fight for the Lincoln Brigades against, you know, Franco's fascists. So he's like 14, 15, and he's beginning to become religious. And he's very afraid that his father would sort of not disown him, but, you know, be really dissatisfied with his life choices. So he goes to talk to his dad and he says, well, are you going to be okay with the fact that I'm, you know, becoming religious? And his dad says to him, son, there's only one thing 
that I will never ever allow you to be. And that's ignorant. Go out there, be whatever you want to be, as long as you take it seriously, as long as you study, as long as you engage and really, truly, you know, dive into it, it's completely fine. And, and Steinsauce, you know, I've had the great privilege of, of meeting him once, uh, the, truly this modern day Rashi. And you come to this meeting and you anticipate that he will now teach you Talmud, right? That he will sit you down and be like, as it says in Tractate Brachot, this and, and and I come with this mindset and I have all these, you know, smart quote unquote unquote because really dumb questions of someone who knows nothing to ask him. Um and I'm really prepared to kind of have this really deep halachic conversation. And he starts talking, and some of the things he's talking about are about Talmud, and some of the things he's talking about are about, you know, science and math and politics and the world and news. And then listening to him talk, after a minute or two, you realize there's actually no distinction for him. For him, all fields of knowledge is Hashem's work. You know, there's no difference between this thing or that thing or the other thing. They're all things that we must understand, all fields of knowledge that we must pursue. It was truly an unbelievably moving experience and all of my studies, and by the way, all of the studies of so many groups of people who've traditionally never had the opportunity to study Talmud, like women who, you know, if you grew up in in a religious community in Israel and were a woman, you have zero access to this thing because you were never taught Talmud, could now pick up a book and enter into this world and, and reclaim part of our heritage. I can't tell you how profound that man's influence is on my life. You know, the only thing I have to add is just that he wrote many, many more books, including um, a very good guide to Jewish prayer. So for people who are saying, like, what are these prayers? Why do I do them? He takes you through the whole service and kind of gives you a sense of what it's all about. But he was actually, when I was writing um, a book that I left on the cutting room floor, maybe I'll come back to it someday, about what, what Judaism is, how to think about it for people who are new to it or who don't know anything about it or who aren't Jewish. One of the things I want to talk about was that old question of, are Jews an ethnicity? Are we a nation? Are we a tribe? Are we a religion? Are we like, what are we? Because we're more than just a religion, but we're more than just an ethnicity or a nation and we're not a race. And Steinsaltz was the one who cracked the code, who said we're a family. And that, you know, some people are estranged from the family. Some people marry into the family, aren't, are not genetically related, but are still welcomed in. You know, some people drift away, but then come back. Even if someone's a ninth cousin, it still feels meaningful to know that they're related. Like family still matters, even when the bonds are stretched very, very thin. He basically came up with the metaphor that I had never seen anyone. Shockingly, even though in Torah, obviously that's what we are, is, you know, the metaphor is the people descended from Abraham and Sarah, right? It's not how people talk about it. And he's the one who had the kind of just radical claim to say, well, you know, Dadoy, as my children would say, we're a family. As the rabbis and say, Dadoy. Dadoy is, is it, I don't know if it's Dadoy in Hebrew. It's, Leo, it's Aramaic, actually. <laughs> it's Dudu. So, doo-doo. so um, <laughs> may his memory be for a blessing, Adin Steinsaltz. Amen. We first saw Esther Pravitsky in her recurring role on one of our favorite shows of all time, Rachel Bloom's Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Esther played Maya, one of the annoying co-workers. And she has a brand new comedy special, Hot For My Name. We were excited to get to speak with her about her comedy, her scene-stealing parents, and how her Jewish identity affects her career. Stephanie and Liel hopped on Zoom with Esther Pravitsky last week. 
Our listeners will know our guest, Esther Pavitsky, as Maya, Rachel Bloom's needy millennial co-worker on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She currently stars in Hulu's Dollface, and her brand new Comedy Central stand-up special is called Hot For My Name. Welcome, Esther. Hey, guys. I love that you called my character needy, because I feel like they don't call Maya needy, but it's so accurate. It's like an affirmation for you. Yes. Your new stand-up special, Hot For My Name, is out. We've all watched it. We think it is very funny. It obviously shows you doing stand-up, but it also shows your parents. And uh, there's an unlikely star, which is the city of Skokie, Illinois. For Jews, like, we all know Skokie, but, like, because of, like, the Nazi thing in the 70s. What's Skokie like? Oh, my God. Well, you know, I grew up there, so full bias. I will say most people who grew up there hate it like all my friends have left but I think these people are wrong I think especially after living in Los Angeles for 10 years like Skokie has parking it's like so accessible to the city of Chicago but yet it has like all of its own stuff I just I feel like it's a really livable place and as someone who's been in a city for so long, I really kind of miss that because I do feel like you kind of get like a piece of every pie there. Isn't it amazing, though, that when we're 20, we're like, I want to leave the stump. I want to go to where there's action and excitement. And then we turn 30. is like pretty much I only need parking. Like any place where I can just <laughs> put in my car is great. <laughs> yes, that is so accurate. Here's how great the stand-up is. I was on my freaking Peloton hating myself and hating life. And I started watching it. And I stayed on the bike for the whole thing. Like, I didn't even want to get off oh. the bike because it was so great. So what made you decide <laughs> your parents are basically going to be co-stars in it? I actually pitched the special to Comedy Central. Right away, Comedy Central was like, yes, we want to do this. And then I called my parents and told them, guys, great news. Like, I'm going to have a comedy special. And they're like, yay. And I'm like, and you guys are going to be in it. And they're like, what? So this whole thing is, uh, the reason we're in, in this uh, is because you want to show people why you're so neurotic because of your upbringing, right? Well, I didn't say I was neurotic. Well, what are you? you? You seem to be... I'm f I'm too scared to ride a bike or swim. I'm pretty needy. You're needy? All right, but... Some we, people say that. Why? What do you attribute your tenaciousness to? Where you stick to it and you and you. Oh, that's easy. It's that. Unlike some people who, where their parents said, "Oh, you're so good. You're so good." For me, right at an early age, you guys told me I was bad at stuff. So that was not new to me. That would never discourage me when I went out in the world and someone said, "No, you're bad." That really just fell right off me because I was so used to hearing it from a young age. I'm used to trying and failing. Because of because, your abusive parents? No, because my parents never thought I was special. Oh, God, let me out of the car! Sometimes. Let me out of the car! Mom, yeah, you're am I wrong? Yeah, I think so. I don't think we were awful. No, I didn't say you were awful. I'm not going to be in this thing. I don't think we were negative. We're going to get arrested if she puts this on her special. No, we don't think that's a good idea. We don't need to be in it. You can do it. And I'm like, well, I don't have enough material to do this without <laughs> you. So you can either have a daughter with a comedy special and be in it or none of the above. What is the pitch like? So initially, it was actually Adam Sandler who had seen my stand up 
and decided that he wanted to produce my stand-up special. So that's kind of the first step that gave me the confidence to feel like, okay, this is a real thing. Like I can do this. We can go pitch this. And so I went into Comedy Central with my friend Nick Goosen, who directed it, who also works with Adam Sandler. And we kind of pitched it to Comedy Central as like, look, we're going to go in between the stand-up bits and we're going to show you with footage of my family why I'm a comedian. Like, and I also (laughs) felt that to get to know me through just my stand-up is not enough. Like, I think that there's so much more and especially just seeing how I was raised and how my family treated me and what they think of me. And it's too hard to pitch my dad. I mean, you've seen it. It's like I could not imagine sitting and trying to explain what my dad is. And in fact, when I had the show alone together, I had Fran Drescher played my mom. And we were going to do an episode where I, my dad came. And I was like, no one can play my dad. I came up with one person. It was Richard Lewis. And he was busy doing curb, so he couldn't do it. And I was like, okay, I'm just not going to have a dad on this show because no one else can do it right. Can you tell us a little bit about Maury and Mary, your parents? Yeah, I really refer to them as this, like, toxic combination of people. But I mean that in the nicest way. Like, they are not supposed to be with each other. Like, they just don't make any sense together. My mom is this, like, quiet Finnish woman from Minnesota who is like shy and like is a perfectionist and like makes her bed four seconds after she steps out of it. And then my dad is just this like maniac Jewish gambler. I don't even know how I would scratch the surface on explaining him. So they're just so different from one another and they make no sense. And so like that is what raised me and made me who I am. Now that I'm an adult and like see how people raise their children and how my friends have been raised, I'm like, oh my God, like we did this all wrong with me. Like this was all like not the normal way. One of the greatest bits of the special was the part in which you summon your parents to a quote unquote surprise meeting at Comedy Central in which the producers tell them basically the opposite of all the bad, horrible things that they'd ever told you. <laughs> she's she's a pleasure. Wow. A mature you. pleasure. Did you have something that you wanted to say that you felt was so important that you video conferenced in? from LA? Yeah, I mean, I would say this, that one special thing about Esther is that she's always the same. We're never concerned about which Esther you're going to get. You know, like, why would we be? Because she's always the same. Wow. And also, no, like, dramatic, like, moments, no big explosions or, like, crying. Just all around positive. Wow. I mean, what do you guys think about what you just heard? Well, I hope it's true. It just doesn't sound like our Esther. It's funny. It really is. I guess I don't understand what's so funny. Well, they seem to say that you're consistent. Growing up, it was inconsistent. You never knew which Esther you were going to get. So I imagine writing a bit like this. There was a point in which, you know, you hit save and you sort of go to bed and you're like, this hurts. (laughs) This is my life. So Comedy Central, rightfully so, was like, so you guys are just going to shoot footage? Like, you're not going to plan anything out? Like, so we decided, like, fair enough, we're going to write one bit. And so the bit that we wrote was the conference room scene that you're talking about. And the idea behind that was, okay, we're going to sit in the conference room, we're going to bring my parents, we're going to have Comedy Central tell my parents 
how well behaved I am. And it'll be funny, you know, like Comedy Central execs will say what a good girl I am or what a good job I do. And my parents will be like, wow, this is amazing. And then that, that'll be the bit, right? What I didn't plan for or expect was that my parents would totally like react honestly and openly without any shame or embarrassment consideration <laughs> and just completely ripped me to shreds. Their reaction was so honest and real. It was funnier than anything that we could have put together or come up with. And so it ended up being one of my favorite scenes, which I, I going into it, I was like, oh, I hate pre-produced stuff, you know, but this, because it became like this organic thing where my parents humiliated me, it ends up being so funny. And yes, to answer your question, I totally was like, wow, okay. So now everyone at Comedy Central like knows that I used to bite people or whatever the fuck my parents told them. So the title of the special is Hot for My Name, and your name is obviously Esther Pravitsky. And I sort of want to talk to you about like, on the one hand, like it is a Jewish name, but it's that's not really the the issue people have, is it? Is it like Esther? <laughs> what What's the thing? We have neighborhoods full of them in Brooklyn, by the way, if, you're, if you want to meet some kindred people. So with that name, you meet people growing up and they're always like, that's my great grandma's name. Like it's everybody's grandma. It's my grandma's name. Like it's a really common grandma name. I'm actually surprised that you guys are saying there's young Esther's there. That's, that makes me happy. I think they're all like Hasidic Jews. Of course. Of course. I just think Esther Pavitsky together. I don't know why the most Jewish name I've ever heard. Like, I don't know. What do you, what does it sound like to you guys? I mean, look, you're talking to Leah Leibowitz and Stephanie Butnick. To us, it sounds like <laughs> Midwestern wholesome American. Like, it's great. No, I mean, it's interesting. Like, to me, it's like an old country name in the best way. Oh. Like, in the shtetl, you go to Esther Pavitsky and she, like... <laughs> runs, you know, she's like running some kind of like business from her home, I imagine. She has the best pickles, <laughs> Esther Povitsky does. She's tie-dyeing in her backyard. Yes. Wow, I'm really living it up then. That's so great. I had a joke about that, like basically that I'm hot for my name was a bit that I have. And yeah, it's just based on, well, it's like, come on, you, you guys know it. Your, our names are not like they're not hot. Yeah, they're not. We're not Jennifer Lawrence. We don't have like a cool, sleek name. And I feel like probably when all of us were growing up, it was more cool to have like those very whitewashed, whatever you'd call them names. And now I think, oh my God, like to have a quote unquote exotic, weird sounding name feels really special and cool and like different and I don't know. Now I certainly appreciate it because of it's become so much of my identity. But of course, it's, it's like I'm sure everyone goes through that where you're like kind of embarrassed when you're younger. Esther Pravitsky, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Our listeners can watch Hot For My Name on Comedy Central and watch Alone Together, watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, you know, do it all. Esther, thanks so much. Thanks, you guys. I really appreciate it. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. 
Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Sharansky was one of the most famous refuseniks. That's the term for Jews who were refused exit visas by the Soviet authorities. He was then imprisoned for nine years and at one point held in a Soviet gulag. After being released and emigrating to Israel, he served as a member of the Israeli parliament, a minister in four Israeli governments, and the head of the Jewish agency. And now he's published a memoir called Never Alone, Prison, Politics, and My People. Liel had the chance to catch up with Natan Sharansky about his life and his work. Listeners of Unorthodox who know me know that I am this tough, gruff Israeli who doesn't show his emotions very often. I got to tell you, I am very nervous and very excited right now because I'm talking to one of the very few people alive who I could genuinely and honestly call my absolute hero. He was one of the Jewish refuseniks who fought and won against the evil empire and won his freedom to go and join his people in Israel. He was an Israeli politician and a damn fine one at that, and then led the Jewish agency through nine of the more transformative years. He is an inspiration to all of us and the author of a new book, which we'll talk about in a second. Hello to you, Nathan Sharansky. Shalom, shalom, Yerushalayim. Shalom lecha v'kimat Shabbat shalom. We're recording on the cusp of Shabbat. I want to jump right right into the book because I feel I haven't said enough nice things to you this morning. I want to say a few more nice things. So I got the galley of this book and I thought, you know, I'm so excited because I, I admire you so much. I'll read a few chapters today and then, you know, continue it throughout the week. I was up until 2.30 
in the morning, reading the whole thing. It is an astonishing book. I want to talk about it at great length. But before we even get to it, I want to ask you about the title. Why did you choose to call it Never Alone, as we associate so much of your early life in being in quite lonely places like the Gulag? First of all, frankly speaking, I wanted to call it 999. Nine years in prison, nine years the minister in the government, and nine years the head of Jewish agency. And I thought it's kind of funny, but, you know, the publisher said that it looks like in a joke, and also it's like devil's symbol, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know all this mystics of American life, but the natural title is Never Alone because the book is about my dialogue, about the dialogue of Jewish people, those who are in Israel, those who are in diaspora, and those who are in a, sitting in a punishing cell like me, as if I am isolated from all the world. But, you know, from the moment I joined this amazing world of Jewish people, I really never felt myself alone. And it, the most important thing in prison was not to let KGB feel that you are alone, that you are abandoned. And thanks God, it was very easy to, to continue this connection with my people. And I have to say, frankly, that my connection, by this feeling that you are not alone, that you are connected to all the world, was by far the strongest in the Soviet prison. It is very difficult to reach that level of purity, of interconnection of souls as in prison. You wrote something like, it's very easy to be a Jew in a Soviet prison cell. I mean, you don't have to keep kosher, you don't have to, like, all you have to do is exist and survive, and here you are connected to the Jewish people. No, 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 it's not exist and survive. All you have to do is to say no to KGB. And the moment you say no, they don't know you are not ready to accept that generous proposal to give you back the life of Soviet slave. <laughs> you made everything what you could. You don't know how people can fulfill all 613 commandments. But here you have one commandment, say no to KGB, be true to your people and yourself, and that's all. Give me sort of that bird's eye view of the transition Nine years in a Soviet prison, nine years in the pinnacle of Israeli politics, nine years at the head of the Jewish agency. How did these experiences, these periods sort of inform one another? How did your experiences in one sort of morph or, or teach you or prepare you for the other? Give me that sort of big picture. The experience in prison, first of all, before it, I was absolutely assimilated so Jew. I had no identity, no freedom. I uh, discovered my identity after 1967. And through my identity, I had enough strength to fight for my freedom. And in this short period of time of being Jewish activist and human rights activist, refusing five years before my arrest, I really could discover for myself the power of this connection. You discover how Israel, Jews of the world, are one in our mutual struggle. So in prison, where the main effort of KGB to make you feel lonely, abandoned, and to destroy you, and your main aim is not to let them. The highest value is to remain free, person connected to your people. And so these nine years in prison really gave me opportunity to experience the unity of Jewish people, interconnection. Then when you are in the government, it's how to make the government to be responsible for the Jews of the world. It's very tricky. Politicians, first of all, is responsible to those who voted for him. And here is Israel, which is in the home of all the Jews of the world, 
And how can the politician who, after all, wants to be reelected, how he can feel this connection? How to make Jews of the world to feel that through connection to Israel, they can stay Jewish? Are we really one people? Shall we stay together? Are we diverging or converging? And having opportunity to watch it from three different dimensions. And as you know from drawing, if you want to see any object fully, you have to see it from three different dimensions, directions. You write in the book that every year you celebrate not one, but two seders. The one is the one we all celebrate as the Passover seder, as the traditional one. The other is the day of your release from prison, which happens six weeks or so traditionally before the main Seder, and, and you write, and also your daughter recently shared in a really brilliant and, and moving essay in Tablet Magazine, this observation that it's getting kind of harder and harder to teach younger generations. I mean, it was one thing to teach your children, but now to teach your grandchildren what this struggle for freedom, your struggle for freedom, your wife's struggle for freedom was truly about and how to make it kind of immediately felt by them and not just some kind of like, oh, yes, there were these people called Refuseniks and they did this thing and then they let them go. So how do we do that? How do we keep your incredibly inspiring story from becoming, from those of us who'd lived it, like myself and so many others listening, who've lived it so immediately and emotionally, to our children and their children who may just come to it as just a piece of dry history. How do we keep it alive? Two things I want to say. First of all, we Jews have absolute unique example how to keep alive, which no other people have. It's our Seder, our festival. Well, only to think that uh, 3,500 years ago, there, there was this miracle which really had to show to Jewish people that they are chosen for the special mission of this world. And if simply that's something that children are learning in the religious text or in the text of the history of Jewish people, I don't think it's possible to keep the relevance of it. But because in every generation, practically in, in every year and almost every day, uh, you're making effort, you, your rabbis, your, your friends are making effort to connect this with your daily life. What is the meaning of it today? And when you're telling it to your children, you're connecting it to the life of you and your children and how to relieve those feelings, those discoveries in today's life. That gives opportunity to continue it for thousands of years. Now, the second thing, this generation of American Jews has a big benefit. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them, were involved in the struggle for Soviet Jewry. They were visiting us and bringing, smuggling the letters. They were participating in the demonstration. They were demanding from their congressmen centers to, to act. They were twinning bar mitzvahs and so on. So the challenge is not how to tell them about me or other refusals, but how to tell to their own children what they were doing. And what amazes me or surprises me all the time that this absolutely unique period of their life, a unique victory with Jewish people won by defeating the most powerful empire in the world, they somehow forgot to tell it to their children. Very often I meet some enthusiastic Jew in America and some other place. He sees me and says, oh, let's have a picture I want to show to my child. I want to tell him about your story. And then I start talking to him and I find out that he visited in Moscow, refused, like, and they were, had twinning uh, with the other family. They had a lot of events for, 
and of course they participated in some massive demonstrations. I said, do your children know about it? She said, no, no, but now that I'll see you, I'll tell about you. So I think it's really very unfortunate that we spend a lot of time thinking how to make our children excited about our history and don't tell them how we, we Jewish people, and definitely American Jews were very important part of this, defeated the most powerful part of our times and led two million Jews to go to freedom. And this story is so closely connected to 20 years of their own life, and it's, it disappears. So speaking of children and what they do and do not know, there is a part later on in the book that speaks of your speeches and engagements in American college campuses. And th- there are a lot of dispiriting stories there, but one in particular sort of broke my heart. You come to a college campus and this young woman shouts at you that Israel is an apartheid state, and you stop and say, hey, lady, you know, I knew Nelson Mandela. I was an observer in the South African election. Do you want to talk? I'll explain to you why I don't think you're correct. And she just looks down and says, no, I, I don't want to talk to you. What's going on on college campuses from your perspective? She came there with a good group of demonstrators when I and Michael Douglas were speaking. And uh, they were with all the slogans about apartheid. And I went to the demonstrators and they chose her because she was young. She definitely didn't live in this world when there was an apartheid in South Africa. And she looked Jewish to me. And I came to said and said what I said. That, and then she looked to her like ringleader, some guy. And he gave her something. And then she started shouting, we did not come here to talk to you. We came here to demand boycott Israel. And everybody started shouting. And it, it reminded me really these sad days of the Soviet Union when the crowds were organized to shout, to condemn one another dissident, to condemn Sakharov, Solzhenitsyn, and so on. Nobody read their books. Nobody knows what they're talking about. Nobody is interested to read their books. These children... They are not living under the totalitarian regime. It is their free choice to to come to this demonstration. And it is their free choice not to know everything. I don't know to what extent American young people understand. It's not part of their free democratic life. It's running back to the most primitive totalitarian ways of life. When you simply, you are conquered by some ideology, it doesn't matter what the ideology is that here is oppressed world, and here are oppressors, and we belong to, we are with the oppressed world against oppressors, and don't confuse us with the facts. Ideology is more important than facts, than the reality, and so on. I think it's a very dangerous phenomenon, which I started watching 20 years ago, and I described it in the book, and I see how it's developing on the campuses. The campuses were the first where it started developing. In fact, in 2003, after my first tour, the campuses, I came to Eric Sharon, who was then prime minister, and said that I believe the most important battlefield for the future of Jewish people is American campuses, universities. And then I was concerned, and I'm even more concerned now, not because Israel is under pressure. I don't, by the way, I don't believe that BDS and all these movements damage in any way to economical or other positions of Israel. But it definitely makes a lot of damage by disengaging young Jews from Israel and from the very exciting, interesting world of uh, Jewish identity. I mean, one of the tragedies of, of this book is that it contains so much insight about so many topics that I could, I could literally keep you here for hours asking reams of questions about everyone, but, but I want to get to what is at the heart of it, 
which is really the, uh, shall we say, the challenges and opportunities facing the Jewish people. And I want to start with the challenges in an unbelievably candid way that really, I mean, look, I read a lot of political books and memoirs. I don't think I've ever seen this level of openness in, in a book from a public official involved in something at this scale. You write about the debate surrounding egalitarian prayer in the Kotel which is something that was one of your signature fights. Uh, You're deeply involved with it. This, for our listeners who don't know, was an attempt at a compromise that would allow mixed gender prayer at the Kotel for Reform and Conservative Jews. Currently, the Kotel is divided into a men's section and a women's section in the Orthodox fashion. And you have this moment in the book in which you write about someone who has been your friend for 30 years, has been your political partner, has been your colleague, the current Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu. And you have this moment in which Bibi turns to you and says, don't you get it, Nathan, these progressive, left-leaning, reform and conservative American Jews, they don't really care about Israel. They, they care about democratic politics. They care at the time Obama was president. They care about Obama. They're not going to tell us what to do. And your anger and your disappointment were very palpable. T- tell us a little bit about this moment and, and what you learned from it. Okay, I hope that... Uh... I present, it, it's much more complicated station than the way you, you now speak. It seems okay that Prime Minister was a good guy, and at some moment he uh, has twisted his mind, and uh, now he doesn't think good about American Jewry. That's not the station. The station, by the way, Bibi is the one who asked me to look for the solutions for the court. He is the one who was very actively helping to find the solution. And then, because of political reasons, at some moment when the compromise was reached, when everybody voted, when Bibi forced his partners to accept this compromise, and then he felt that his coalition is in danger, and he is not ready to risk his coalition, because the most important thing at this moment is that he will stay, will continue leading Israel, and for this he needs coalition. That's one side of it. The other side is that Bibi did have reasons, seriously uh, not connected to Cotton, to feel that for so many of his critics, they don't care about security of Israel. Both sides exaggerate. Nobody's betraying nobody. That's exactly what they're trying to explain. But the disappointments and bitter feelings are real. And that is the danger. How how to neutralize this feeling of betrayal from both sides, how to make steps to understand the other side and to see what we can do to make our differences less, but at the same time, you expect also from the other side to do this effort. So the tragedy of that moment was that I felt very strongly betrayed by Prime Minister, and on the other hand, I felt very strongly that he is right in feeling that the critical moment of the struggle of the Iranian deal is betrayed by representatives of a so-called progressive American Jewry. Now, in moments like this, do you ever say to yourself, I spent almost a decade in the Gulag fighting so I could be part of this Jewish story, so I could you know, bring about the unity of the Jewish story. Here I am at the central spot of the Jewish story, and all I deal with, it seems, or so much of what I deal with is, is strife, is discontent. Is, does it feel ironic to you? What, what, what do you feel at moments? Do you get frustrated? Well, of course. Let's say technically you are always frustrated because of this. <laughs> but strategically, I think uh, I enjoy it because I know that that is our way of survival. The fact that we in Israel 
who chose to live in the Jewish democratic state of the Middle East, and Jews in America who chose to live as a minority in a liberal society. And we have to be concerned all the time about our physical survival. And they have to be concerned how to survive as minority community in a very assimilating liberal society. So the fact that we have different sets of priorities is natural. The thing is how remember all this, keep in mind all the time that at the same time we are one family and we want, that's important, we want to stay one family. And so what we have, how we can follow our set of priorities and at the same time to adjust ourselves to the other side in the way that they will feel staying in the family. So tell us a little bit about how to do this. I mean, you've, you've brought so many of us so much hope throughout the years on so many topics, but here in particular, I mean, I, I love listening to the way you just put it, but if you talk to kind of, I think, the average Israeli, he or she will tell you, you know, American Jews are just a bunch of spoiled, assimilated people whose priorities are totally off. They don't understand the real struggle of living here. You talk to the average American Jew, he or she will tell you, hey, man, I have a real hard time supporting Israel because the way they treat the Palestinians and I don't like Bibi or I don't like how religious the country is getting it really often seems especially if you read you know american jewish media or kind of pay attention to these big public forums like we're, we're headed towards some kind of big messy breakup first of all i don't think you feel this way but but i want you to tell us why and and more importantly what we could do to make things that much better and follow your lead well uh, i don't feel this way only because in all these remarks there is some salt of truth. The fact that Israelis say what you just now said about American Jews, you can say they are ignorant, and they, many of them are. But they simply have to look into the polls, which are done by American Jewish and non-Jewish organizations, to see that American Jews are assimilating, to see that Israel is not number one priority, number two priority, number three priority, when they decide how to vote, and so on and so on. And when American Jews are complaining that Israelis really don't understand the way how we connect ourselves to, to Judaism. They're also right. So one of the things is to fight the Arabs. From this point, there are so many projects which we launched in Jewish Agency, and they're all about Israel engagement programs, beginning, of course, from birthrights, which is coming for 10 days, but then programs like Mossad coming for one year, and hundreds of different ways to seduce people to come for, for a few days or for a few months to Israel. And then people say, so what will you do? Nothing. The reality, the, the very reality of the living Jewish state, which is so deeply connected to the history, and that's the easiest thing here to, to feel the geography and history of this biblical state, and at the same time, how modern it is, how open it is, it's always exciting. And what I've discovered, there is a lot for Israeli Jews to discover in diaspora, what it is to be Jew by choice, community of minority where everybody depends on everybody, and how in this assimilating atmosphere to keep your connection to Judaism in very different ways. What, uh, what looks for Israeli as the way of assimilation, that after all, this non-Orthodox movement is the way how to assimilate easily. When they spend some time inside the American community, they discover that, that is the way how to survive Jewishly in this assimilating situation. So first of all is 
to know one another more and hear all types of different exchanges are extremely important. But second, to talk to one another. The thing that we are talking through one another, we are talking at one another, instead of simply discussing things together. Knesset has three sessions during the year. If before the beginning of every session, there will be special meeting, a round table, between, let's say, 120 uh, members of the Knesset and 120 representatives of different Jewish communities. And the, of course, the big question is how they chose and so on. And all the questions which have to come during the next session for the debates of the Knesset, which in any way, direct or indirect, are influencing on the life of Jewish diaspora, will be first discussed there. Simply discussed. Of course, they don't have the power of voting. So. But when the most basic questions of our Jewish coexistence are discussed, nobody thinks to invite representatives of uh, American Jews. But also the opposite things are, are true. When, so let's say a reform jury is taking decision which can disconnect it from conservative and any other movements not speaking about ordinance. No, nobody can decide it for a reform jury. But did you discuss it with your partners of conservative Did you discuss it with the rabbis in Israel, what kind of problems in the future will appear and how we can make them solve them? You know, even the fact that both sides will feel and will know that their opinion is taken into account, as it happens in the family. Two sons are taking a very different decisions, but they're discussing it in the family, and then they take responsibility, but at least the family understands where we go and what we have to do together in order to avoid the split. Because if you are family, we have not to compete who betrayed more the other, but to compete who explained better to the other your problems. So Nathan Sharansky, nine years in the Gulag, nine years in Israeli politics, nine years in a Jewish agency. Now you're, you're a young, free man. What are you going to do now? First of all, I'm a young free man for, from 1967 when I... <laughs> from that time, I was Jewish activist, human rights activist, uh, refused the prison of Zion, activist of Aliyah, the member of parliament, minister, head of Jewish agency. Does matter. I did the same thing. I was trying to work on keeping this feeling of togetherness, reconnecting me and everybody who wants to listen to me with our own people. And that's what I continue to do as a, the head of the School for Shlichim of Jewish Agency, and the head of the ISGAP Institute for Fighting Antisemitism. And uh, of course now it is even better part of my life because I have now seven grandchildren, what is a big victory in our life because there was a long period when we were afraid that we will not even start with having our children. So when my first daughter was born, so the first thing which my mother was alive then did, she took the picture of the daughter and sent her to the head of my prison. <laughs> For her, it was like the best food that we have won. <laughs> so now with every grandchild, I feel that the life is full of enjoyments. And you're reading the articles of my daughter. It's also additional bonuses. Sir, our debt of gratitude to you is enormous. We continue to be inspired by your courage, by your wisdom, and by your warmth. Tadarabarecha. Tadarabarecha. 
Mazel Tovs. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov? We wanted to wish a Rafua Shlema to our Gentile of the Week, Paul Westfall, the NBA Hall of Famer, player and coach. Uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful guest, and he has been diagnosed with brain cancer. So we have him in our thoughts, and we wish him all the best. Liel? I would like to extend a hearty Mazel Tov to all the listeners of the Take One podcast and everyone else who is studying Daf Yomi, one page of Talmud a day, for completing this very day, as we record on a Monday, the second tractate of the Talmud, Masechet Shabbat. It's on to Eruvin, which separates the girls from the women and the men from the boys. No, that's a bar mitzvah. And it's going to be a bumpy ride, but worth it. It is. Simon Tova, Mazel Tova, Mazel Tova, Simon Tova. And I get to come back, right? The Corduroy Rav makes the an appearance. The Corduroy Rav makes uh, a prominent appearance very, very early on uh, in the proceedings. And if you haven't listened or if you fell off the bandwagon, now's a great time to jump right back on. I think of it more as a Conestoga wagon, just <laughs> just going through the Wild West of Talmud. It's awkward because Mark was the Corduroy Rav when he was like wearing Corduroy blazers. And now he's wearing like Corduroy shorty shorts. And it's just like a whole different vibe. I will always bring the right wardrobe item to my responsibilities. You will never see me. You will never see the corduroy Rav in denim. You will never see him in... I don't think I've ever seen you wear jeans. Do you wear jeans? Madras. Do you own jeans? It's never the right weather for it because if it's really cold... (laughs) If it's really cold, I want something with a little more heft. And if it's really warm, I wear shorts. I don't know. It's... I own jeans. I have a pair of jeans. My Mazel Tov is to my friend uh, William Jerezowitz. A lot of you knew him. His book, Excellent Sheep, about college students today, hit big a few years ago. And he has a new book that recently came out just in the last last few weeks called The Death of the Artist, about how freelance artists, sculptors, graphic designers, writers, painters, musicians, how they make a living today. Now that the bottom has fallen out of all of our industries, uh, how do they piece it together? And so he, he interviews a couple hundred artists about their work as Uber drivers, short order cooks, babysitters, nannies, you name it, and, and and how they move on to Etsy and how they moved on to eBay and how they use social media and how they're kind of struggling. And here's the crazy thing. It's, it's not only a, a truly trenchant social analysis, it's also a page turner. You actually want to find out if some of these artists claw their way out of their parents' basement, literally, not metaphorically. <laughs> oh. So- Really, go read The Death of the Artist. It's a great book, and, and hearty congrats to Bill DeResowitz for that. I'm gonna, I, I hope to talk about it more on the show or in the pages of Tablet soon. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We're also on YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for Tablet Magazine, and you can see your unorthodox hosts in all sorts of states of disabee and disarray. And it's embarrassing for us, but you'll enjoy it. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We're going to be back in a few weeks with a big letters and correspondence and voicemail blowout. So call us and give us your craziest thoughts, your hottest takes, 914-570-4869. The show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman. Esther Werdiger is out on leave, and we're excited for her to come back soon. The theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com, but the mailbox theme is by one Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Aaron Shubb of Portland, Maine. And we come to you from many vacation spots near lobster shacks and other trafe experiences across the Northeast. Shalom, friends. Hot for my name. 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 Hot for my name.